kind of like wondering where the listening devices are. Thank you also for the opportunity to get to know you. It's been a real privilege of meeting with the, the search committee, of meeting with the session. Uh, it has been a little overwhelming. Uh, yesterday we met a lot of people, but again, very gracious. Um, although I think Grace actually wins the Graciousness Award after I asked her how her three children are. <laughs> Since she's been married three years without any, that was a little <laughs> unsettling. In my undergraduate days as an engineering student, back when the dinosaurs roamed, I had a great opportunity to work with a large company in the 1980s. The goal was to complete a, uh, a robotic assembly line, and we wanted to see if we could have parts come in on a conveyor belt, assemble a computer monitor, and then send them back out without anybody touching them uh, humanly. I know it's not a big deal now, but again, back when the dinosaurs roamed, this was cutting-edge technology. The only catch was that the project was about $51 million over budget, about three months behind schedule. So the company flew in these troubleshooters from overseas, and my job as a co-op student was to shadow one of them for six months and try and absorb everything that I could from him. It was just an incredible opportunity. Learned about the company, learned about engineering. What he really taught me was about people. One of the things that I remember was advice that he had given me one day. The programming department that was responsible for overall line control management was badly behind schedule. The bigger problem, however, was that the manager was lying to her boss about when things would be done. And on understanding this, my mentor sat me down in his office and in his very best Scottish brogue said to me, Bill, you've got to learn to fail well. You've got to learn to fail well, and that was a new concept for me because that's not how I grew up. I grew up learning how to do well. And I learned how to do so well that you didn't fail. I mean, that's sort of the point of learning to do well. I had a good family, very supportive, but those are the messages that I heard from my family. Messages that I heard from my relatives, from my community, messages that I heard from my school. Frankly, they're the messages that I heard from my church. How do you go about being successful. And I, you know, I bought into that. I was all about success. I like doing well. The problem with that is you're completely unprepared for when you don't do well. Unprepared for the times when I made bad decisions or unprepared for the times where I sinned. Unprepared for the times when my insistence on having to have things my way made life harder on my friends and my family. Or unprepared for the times when uh, my wife has felt crushed by my need to be right when my impatience has lashed out at my kids because they're getting in the way of what I really want to get done, or when my insecurities have made it absolutely impossible to hear constructive criticism from my coworkers. You see, when the messages that you've heard all of your life, when the messages that you've absorbed are all about how to do well, what are you supposed to do when you fail? Okay, here's a couple options. Option number one, you just pretend that didn't happen. You just ignore that and keep on going, I didn't say that, I didn't do that, next. Option number two, defend yourself and start explaining, start arguing why it really was okay what I did or what I said. Option number three, I'm going to work harder now to make up for that thing so that you all remember the success, not the fail. Option number four, when none of the rest of those work, get depressed. Feel like nothing ever that I do ever turns out right or even start to tell everybody I never do anything right. Those are all options that I've tried in life. You know what happens when you do any of those? You're still failing. 
because those are all non-successful ways of handling failure. They're not successful. So what do you do when you have written a bad story for your life and it's now taking you into places where you really don't want to go? And that's when it's a joy to discover that God rewrites bad stories. When you open the scripture, you do not see a God who runs to people who are successes. He doesn't run toward people who have their whole acts together. Instead, what do you see? You see God run to people who can't make their lives work. And those are the kind of people that he sits down, not to put his arm around and say, it's okay, you've done the best that you could, but to enter into their world to rewrite their story and to enter into their world to transform them so that, what, so that they now have his heart in his world and they're lining up with him and then they start looking for people who aren't doing well, whose lives they can then start to engage. That's what you're going to see in the book of Ruth. I can't see this behind me. I want to take you back to that time this morning. We're going to spend uh, time fast forward through the entire book. It's after the Israelites have come out of Egypt. They've come out of the wilderness. We're not yet to the time of the kings, still in the time of the judges. So you should probably think here like 11, 1200 B.C., and it's important for us to acknowledge that when we start here, that, that that's just a very strange time period for us. It's hard for us as moderns to think about what life was like. Lifestyles then are weird for us. There are social customs that are weird. They throw words about that we're not really familiar with, words like gleaning, words like guardian, redeemer. And you start to go, how do I even read this book? You think, okay, there's a romance in it, but it doesn't read like a romantic story. Or there's this issue of immigrants and foreigners and refugees just shot through all the pages of the book, but it's not a political treatise on how to go about dealing with issues of immigration. You think, okay, well, there's this issue of the Moabites, and, and we keep having this put in our face. And, and so, okay, at least I'm, I'm, I'm recognizing some ethnic tension here, some racial discrimination, except the longer I look at it, the less it looks like the racial tension that I'm used to. For example, the author makes a big deal about Ruth's background. He keeps calling her Ruth the Moabite. It's a very short book, four chapters, five times he calls her Ruth the Moabite. It almost starts to sound like her last name. We're people who live in a multi-ethnic, multicultural world. For us, ethnicity is something to be celebrated. Diversity is a good thing. We can't even imagine. Why would you ever want to pigeonhole someone according to their ethnicity? I mean, it would have been very strange, Joe, if you had introduced me this morning as Bill, the half-breed German-Lithuanian. <laughs> we, we don't even think in those kind of terms, which means we're going to have to do a little bit of work to get into this book if we want to understand why is it so important to tie her to being a Moabite. So back up in history a little bit and remember that when the Israelites came out of Egypt, they came through the wilderness. They came right up to the edge of the land of, Moabite, of Moab, and the Moabites should have treated them well, but didn't. And the reason that they should have treated them well is there is a kinship relationship between the two peoples. Back up a little further in history, and you learn that the Israelites are descended from Abraham. The Moabites are descended from Lot. Lot is Abraham's nephew. And so in their social world, there's an expectation that the Moabites should treat the Israelites well or at least they shouldn't hurt them. The Moabites, however, do try to hurt the Israelites. Learn about that in a book called Numbers. It's after the Israelites had defeated a couple Amorite kings. And after they defeat the kings, in chapter 22, verse 1, you read that then the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. 
Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, this horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. And the concern here, obviously, is the food supply. They're afraid that the Israelites are just going to devour everything in their path. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pethor, near the Euphrates River in his native land. Balak said, A people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they're too powerful for me. Perhaps then I'll be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whoever you bless is blessed and whoever you curse is cursed. Now Balak's just made a huge mistake. And that mistake is going to cost him. It's also going to cost his people. And the mistake is that he has set himself in opposition to God and to what God is doing in the earth. What is the overarching understanding of all of human history? It's that we are under curse. Adam and Eve sinned and have brought curse down on the entire earth. And God says, I'm not okay with that being the last word on my creation. And so God has obligated himself to enter into this world to bring a redeemer to reverse that curse, to restore creation. And he's chosen to do that through Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So the Israelites have nothing to fear from Moab. It's not because they themselves are so strong and so numerous. It's because God has decided, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And my purpose in making you a great nation is not so that you can be strong and powerful, able to take care of yourselves. My purpose is then to bless all the other nations. I will bless you so that you become a blessing. In other words, God does not look down and say, wow, the, the, the Jewish people have such great characteristics that I can drive my agenda through them. They are the beautiful people of the ancient Near East. He doesn't say that. Instead, he picks a people of little strength, little power, and he says, this is going to show my glory to all the rest of the world. He doesn't choose them because they're special. They are special because he chose them. And he said, it's through you that I'm going to bless all nations. And then he backs that promise down through history to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. You see that commitment to his people as he fights against Egypt on behalf of the Israelites so that the Israelites are freed from Egypt. And then after they are freed, another group of people, the Amalekites, come and fight against the Israelites. God fights for his people against the Amalekites, and at the end of that battle, God curses the Amalekites. He says in Exodus 17, 14, I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. It's part of that, I will curse those who curse you. That's the backstory that needs to be in your mind then when you hear Balak of Moab say, I've got a great idea. I know how to deal with these people. Let's curse them. At that point, God's already obligated himself to step in and deflect that curse, to keep it from landing. He's already obligated himself to turn it into a blessing for Israel, which means he's going to turn it into a curse for Moab.
And so you're not surprised as you keep reading through Scripture to come across a place like Deuteronomy 23.3 where God says, No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation. If you do the math here, the amount of Moabite blood that would be in your system at the tenth generation would be less than one-tenth of one percent. And God says that's way too much, not even to the tenth generation. Think, man, what did these people do? Verse 4, for they did not come out to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And they hired Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor in Aram Naharaim to pronounce a curse on you. However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. God cursed the Moabites. They should, not, they should have come out to greet Israel, their distant relatives, with bread and water. They didn't. They came out with the curse, and they end up being cursed. That's when you realize this book is not about racial discrimination. The Moabites are not allowed into the assembly, not because they're not Jewish. It's because they've decided to set themselves against God. They are setting themselves against the way that God has decided to bless the nations to come and rescue his creation from the curse that's been brought down on it. And if the Moabites had been successful, if they had driven Israel away from food and water, maybe even if they had eliminated Israel, would have seriously hindered God's plan. If they had eliminated Israel, it would have eliminated the vehicle through which God intended to bring the Messiah to this world, and the world would have remained under curse. So the problem with the Moabites is not their ethnicity. The problem is that they have no interest in the restoration of the creation. If God's way of restoration gets in the way of the life that they want to have, they're not interested, interested in the restoration of the Garden of Eden if it costs them dinner. They're not interested in the new creation if it comes with this kind of a price tag. What are they interested in? They want to make sure they can keep on living the way that they're used to. They want to have a food supply. And so effectively, they're saying to God, God, we don't want to bless these people because we don't think that the blessing coming from them will make up for what we actually have to pay, what we have to give. We want the things that we have right now, and we're afraid that we would lose them. We want them so badly, we would rather have the curse that comes from Adam and Eve than risk losing our way of life. Those are our only two options. We pick curse. We want it permanently. And you realize that every single one of us in this room has made that same choice at different times. Every single one of us has had that opportunity. We've seen the bad, we've seen the good, we've seen the curse and the blessing, and we've chosen the curse. Every one of us understands what it's like to be in their shoes. God hears this from the Moabites, metaphorically. He says, okay, you know what? You can have it. You're now cursed but you may not bring that curse into the middle of my people, not to the 10th generation. Now, if you want to understand the scripture, this is really important. If you want to understand all the stories in the Bible, you have to understand that they are set within this framework, this context where you are regularly asked, are you working in line with God in his desire to restore creation? Or are you working against him? Are you giving yourself to what God is giving himself to? Or are you giving yourself to something else? 
If you don't understand that that's the question, a lot of the scripture just sounds ethnocentric. A lot of the scripture sounds like it has nothing to do with you and in, in, in your life. But if you understand that this is the question, what are you giving yourself to? It starts to dawn on you. Actually, it starts to convict you. You think, wow, it is really easy in this world to choose curse. It's really easy in this life to align myself against God because I want to have a certain kind of life, a certain way of life, a certain set of beliefs about life. It's really easy to choose curse. Start to realize that left to yourself, left to your own desires, you would miss out on what God is doing. You would choose the curse over him. And then God enters in and rewrites the story and gives hope because God has not left you on your own. He is at work right this very moment, not simply 2,000 years ago, not 3,000 years ago, but right now, working to restore this world. And part of that restoration is that he works to restore even those who make horrible decisions to align themselves with the curse against him. And that means there's hope for you when you've been foolish. There's hope for me when I've been foolish. Why is that? Because there's hope for a young woman of Moab named Ruth. Okay, that's all introduction. <laughs> any luck will be done by two. Ruth, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now take those sentences, that, those opening to the book of Ruth, and interpret them within the context of everything that we've just been saying. This person, Elimelech, is looking for life. There's a famine. He's looking for food. He's looking for life. And in order to find life, he decides, I'm going to take my people, my family, and leave the people of blessing, and I'm going to look for life among the people of cursing. It's a horrible decision. He sees the famine that the Israelites are going through, and he decides, you know what? I don't think God's going to come through for the Israelites. God will not provide adequately for us so that we can be the nation that blesses all the other nations. I better take care of myself. And some of you at the moment are thinking, wow, Bill, you're, you're being a little harsh with the guy, right? I mean, it, there's no food. He's watching his family not eat. You read the rest of the book, you realize actually there's a lot of people that were in Israel who didn't all leave Israel people who effectively had confidence that God will come back and God will come through for us despite the suffering of this moment. In other words, they had faith, faith that God will not abandon his people. Elimelech, however, does not have that same faith, and so he abandons Israel. Now, if you're an Israelite several thousand years ago, reading the book of Ruth, you're thinking already, this, this is not going to end well. Verse 3, you're right. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malan and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now I'm just getting to know a number of you. So I understand that what I'm about to say, I cannot say with 100% certainty. But I'd be willing to bet that most all of us cannot understand what this was like. Some of you, like me, may have lost a family member, and you understand what that's like. But can any of us say that we understand what it's like to lose our entire family? That's what's happened here. 
Naomi is widowed. She's now childless. The family has no descendants. They're barren. And if the story ended there, it's a really strong morality tale. Run after the things that the rest of this world runs after, and you will not only destroy your own life, you'll ruin the lives of all the people around you. Love the world, lose your life. Thankfully, God does not tell morality tales. He tells stories of redemption. He tells stories of rewriting the lives of people who choose the curse instead of choosing him. And you hear the start of that rewriting in the very next verse, verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. God came through. He's going to keep the Israelite nation alive so that they can be a blessing to all the other nations. And Naomi realizes that life is really found among the people of blessing, not among the people of curse. So she packs up her household along with her daughters-in-law, and they start down the road to Israel. They don't get very far when Naomi turns to her two daughters-in-law, my paraphrase now, and says, actually, guys, you should stay here. You should go back to your mother's homes, and you should look for husbands there. Both Orpah and Ruth do not want to do that. They want to go with Naomi. So they say, no, we're really going to go with you. And if you are familiar with the story, Naomi then draws the the, uh, picture for them in really stark terms. She says, I have no future. And if you tie yourself to me, you have no future either. Naomi's an older woman at this point in time. She has no way to support herself. At some point, she's going to die. And then these two Moabite women these foreigners, these outcasts in Israelite society are going to be left in the middle of Israel with no one to care for them. Where are they going to live? How are they going to support themselves? You think, well, I guess, you know, they could always go back to Moab at that point, but if you leave Moab to come to Israel and you want to return, who's going to welcome you when you get back there? If you tie yourself to Naomi, you're signing yourself up for a very long, slow, pain-filled death sentence. So Naomi looks at the two women and says, I release you from any social obligation that you have to me. And Orpah recognizes the validity of Naomi's logic. She takes her up on it. But Naomi's logic does not sway Ruth. And the question right on the surface of the text is, why not? Why not stay here in Moab and have a good life? Maybe you could find a husband. Maybe you can have a family. If you leave, it it looks like you're going to leave the possibility of having a good life. Why would you do that? It's actually one of the questions that the book tries to wrestle with. What does it mean to have a good life? How do you get a good life? Ultimately, from whom does this good life come? Naomi tries one more time to send Ruth away. Verse 15 Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Go back to the gods that you grew up with. Maybe they'll be able to provide for you. But Ruth replies, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord, not the gods I grew up with, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely if even death separates you and me. Ruth gets it. She gets what Elimelech didn't get. 
She gets what Naomi still really doesn't get. Ruth understands that the good life is not to be found among the people of the curse. It's not to be found with the gods of the people of the curse. The good life cannot be found there because it doesn't matter what those gods promise, the curse always unravels whatever it is that they would give you. The good life is found among the people of blessing. It's found with the God of the people of blessing, and it's found there even when that life looks really bleak. And make no mistake, Ruth's life looks really bleak here. But she would rather choose that life, as bleak as it is, than have any other. So Ruth leaves the land of curse. She leaves the gods of curse. She does it in a way that reminds you of a conversion. You have no idea when she's come to faith. But at some point, she's worked out, here's what I believe, and then she verbally confesses, this is my faith. Your God will be my God. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely. And then she does more than simply confess her faith. She lives it out, gathers up her stuff, and walks on the road with Naomi back to Israel. It's not an emotional decision of the moment. Her faith has this ongoing shaping influence on her life. And you see that ongoingness as you read the rest of the book. So what does Ruth do now that she's in the land of blessing? We heard it earlier in chapter 2. She goes off to glean. Glean is one of those things that you've probably heard about, but it's so socially distant from us, it's hard to sort of, what, what is this gleaning thing? It's a way of caring for people so that even if they've fallen into unfortunate circumstances, they are still able to uh, be cared for. So if you didn't have a crop that came in that year really well, you could still eat because of gleaning. Or if you were poor, you could still eat. Or if you were a foreigner, you could still eat. And you could do that because God laid down this principle. If you come looking for shelter among my people, with me, in my land, I will make sure you have food. And the way that he provided that food was he told his people, when you harvest your grain, don't harvest all the way out to the edges. Leave some. Leave some for people who need to come along and take that. And you're learning there in that moment that the food, everything that you've been given, is actually a gift from him. You always knew if you were an Israelite that the land was a gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. It was given to you. Now you're understanding actually the crops on that land are a gift. You might have put the seed in the ground, but you didn't get inside that little seed and make it germinate and produce a plant that you could later harvest. That all came from the Lord. And if it's the Lord's, he has the ability to say, leave some for other people. And so it helps you understand all of life, everything that we have, all of the abilities that's allowed us to have it, actually, that's a gift. At the same time, it also helps us understand that there is a fundamental similarity between every other person and ourselves. Because if you're in your field harvesting the grain that has been given to you as gift, and you look over and someone's gleaning the, the harvest that's also been given as gift, you realize, you know what, I, I can't look at them and say, I'm fundamentally different than you. I can look down on you, I'm better than you. I'm not you, I'm not the poor, I'm not the widow, I'm not the foreigner. Instead, you look at them and you think, huh, they're, they're receiving a gift from God, just like I'm receiving a gift from God. It comes to both of us in the same exact way. In fact, from God's perspective, we are fundamentally the same. I am the poor. I am the widow. I am the foreigner. It's all from gift. So Ruth goes out to glean. 
She just happens to start in a field owned by a close relative of Elimelech's. The author says it this way, chapter 2, verse 3. As it turned out, you know, it's a, just a big coincidence, out of all of the fields in and around Bethlehem, she just magically sort of wandered in to this one. As it turned out, she's working in a field belonging to Boaz, who is from the clan of Elimelech. What, God, what the author is trying to do here is help you understand this is how God works in his world. There are those times where it's big, it's flashy, it's miraculous. Most of the time it's this way. It's quiet, it's behind the scenes, steering, guiding. And you realize that it's personal. It's not impersonal. Yes, we've already heard that God has come to the aid of his people in general, but now we're seeing that he's behind the scenes, steering, guiding, to come to the aid of whom? It's Naomi in particular. Naomi has come here. She doesn't have any food. And part of rewriting this awful story that Elimelech chose to write that does affect Naomi is that Naomi gets food. But she notice how she gets it. It's by the hand of Ruth. Here again, remember that history we just went through. The Moabites should have come out with food and water to give to the Israelites when they came out of the desert. They didn't. Now, Naomi's coming out of where? The land of curse. She's coming with nothing. It's a very barren time for her. It's a season of desert. What happens? Ruth comes and gives her food. In that moment, Ruth is no longer identified with the Moabite clan because God has rewritten her story, just as God is rewriting the story that Elimelech chose to write. Ruth is now blessing the people of God. She's setting herself in the middle of what God is doing on this planet what God is doing to restore all of creation, and she says, I'm all in. I want to give my life to bless the people of God because that will further the purposes of the people of God. Moabites cursed God's people, ended up cursed. She blesses God's people, and in turn, she herself is blessed. I'm not going to go down any kind of prosperity gospel here. But you have to understand the importance of what's taking place in the text. Sometimes that blessing is relatively small. She gets food. Boaz calls her over to where they're eating, has her sit down in front of him, with him, and piles so much food in front of her, she can't eat it all. In the, that time, what is that? That's to experience the blessing of God, to have more than you can actually use. Or he turns to his workers and says, I want you to leave a whole lot of cut grain for her to pick up. She picks up so much that when she gets done threshing it, it would have been the staggering weight that she's carrying back to Naomi. And Naomi is blown away when she sees all of the food that Ruth is bringing for the two of them. She says, where were you today? Ruth tells her, chapter 2, verse 19, the name of the man that I worked with today is Boaz. Naomi responds, the Lord bless him. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. And I hope you can start to hear the note of hope that's building through this rewritten story. Elimelech chose to write a story of curse. God is choosing to rewrite it. He has not stopped showing his kindness. It's great news. He's not stopped showing his kindness. Then you look a little bit closer at that verse and you think, well, wait a minute. Who is it? who's not stopped showing his kindness? Is it God who's not stopped showing his kindness, or is it Boaz who's not stopped showing his kindness? Who's the he here? Study that at a grammatical level, and you discover, you know, it's ambiguous. You can't tell from the grammar. Think, well, 
kind of clumsy of the author, right? I mean, just, just put a noun there instead of a pronoun would have cleared everything all up, and it wouldn't be... Maybe it's supposed to be ambiguous. You think about it a little bit more. Authors are not ten, tend to not just put words foolishly. You start to realize both are true. God has not stopped showing his kindness through Boaz, who's not stopped showing his kindness. God is providing food for his people in Boaz's field. Boaz is taking that food that God has provided. He's now busy giving it away to everybody else. Boaz is providing food for people out of his field. God is working in his world to restore his world and rescue his world. Boaz is working in God's world to restore his world and rescue his world. Boaz has exactly the same heart that God has, and he's lined himself up now with what God is doing. Who's getting all of this blessing? Clearly, it's Naomi. She gets to eat. God's rewriting her story. It's also Ruth. God's rewriting her story, maybe even a harder story to rewrite, given the cursing on the Moabites. Look again there at that little word at the end of verse 20, our. That man is our close relative, not my close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Ruth has moved out of that camp of cursed Moabites. She has given herself to the people of God, given herself to the God of the people of blessing, and God has embraced her, embedded her in the middle of his community, so much so that she now has a guardian redeemer think, okay, that's cool, I guess. I, what's a guardian redeemer? Here you have to go back into the book of Leviticus, and you learn there that a guardian redeemer has both the ability and the obligation to help restore you if you've fallen from your place in the community. And it typically revolved around the issues of land and descendants. Those were the two things that God had promised to Abraham. I'm going to give you descendants, more descendants than you can possibly count, and I'm going to give you land for a place for them to live. Now, Abraham believes God's promise, lives in the land, receives a child. Hundreds of years later, in Ruth's day, how do you know if God's still keeping his promise? Do you just sort of believe that? Or is there actually some evidence? If you're an Israelite, a lot of evidence. All you have to do is step outside your door onto that ancestral plot of ground, and as you stand on the, the land that God gave to your family, you realize God is still faithful. Here's the evidence of it. I am here. I exist. I'm one of those descendants. And where I'm standing is the land that he gave to my ancestors. What does that mean if you're an Israelite? It means that this is the evidence that God is still keeping his promise to us. But what happens if you're forced to sell the land? Or what happens if you don't have any heirs to inherit from you? Again, as an Israelite, does that start to play with your head? And you start to think, well, is God no longer keeping his promise to my part of this family? Has his promise to my descent, my ancestors been cut off? Or is there some continuity here? That's when a guardian redeemer steps in. Because a guardian redeemer has the ability to purchase land in your name to preserve your inheritance. They also have the ability to provide an heir for you. Not one that would take their name, but one that would take your name to inherit your property, to guarantee your place among the people of God. It's an amazing ability the guardian redeemer has that comes at great personal cost. Because when they buy that piece of ground, it does not get enfolded into their estate. It gets folded into yours. And when they raise up an heir for you, support that heir, give to that heir things that they could have given to their own family, it doesn't benefit them. It benefits you. 
It's all for your sake so that you have a place among the covenant people of God. They paid the cost and you reap the benefit. That's what Naomi has in mind when she says that Boaz is one of our guardian redeemers. He's somebody who could keep Elimelech's family's name alive, the name that's about to die out because of the foolish story that Elimelech has chosen to write. So as you read chapter 3, Naomi says to Ruth, you know what? You should ask him. You should ask Boaz if he would do that for us. Ruth does ask him. It's an incredibly costly ask. But when she asks, Boaz doesn't hesitate. He says, absolutely, be glad to be your guardian redeemer. Very next day, he buys the field from Naomi. He marries Ruth. They have a child. And if you're an American, you think this is the happily ever after part of the story. And you figure that last picture in the happily ever after should be what? Should be Ruth standing there holding her baby, this smile on her face, maybe sort of this overwhelmed, bemused look on her face as she realizes she's been redeemed. She's married. She has a child. Beautiful picture. But it's not the picture that Scripture gives you. Scripture gives you a different picture. Chapter 4, verse 16. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. Let that sink in. Naomi has a son. Elimelech has an heir. His land is kept in his family. His family has a place in his clan. His clan is full strength as they serve the people of God. Here is hope. This man who chose curse, who should have wiped out his entire line, his name is still alive in a very real way in their world. That meant that he is still alive, all because of the sacrifice of Boaz. Can you hear the gospel? Can you hear the echoes of it coming? Can you see the shadow of Jesus, our guardian redeemer, who at great personal cost to himself, a cost that never gets paid back, pays for every single time that you and I have chosen the foolishness of curse. Every single time that we have forfeited our inheritance. And he paid that cost so that we would forever have a place among the people of God. It's what the cross is all about. Jesus made a trade with us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, to take on himself the foolishness of us choosing curse, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God and forever be part of God's family. should come as no surprise then that Jesus is actually part of this family line. Boaz has a son, Obed, and Obed has a son, Jesse. Jesse has a son, David, and so on down the line till you get to Jesus, Jesus who brings hope. So let me ask you very pointedly now, do you know what it is to feel hopeless this morning? Or have there been times in your life when you have felt hopeless? Hopeless because of some of the choices that you've made in life. Or hopeless because of the choices that other people have made. Foolish choices that have now affected you and only seem to bring curse on you. Or maybe you'd say, Bill, I, it's not really hopeless, but, but I do feel discouraged. Discouraged over where life has taken me. I feel like, what's the use of even trying? I've made choices. Other people have made choices. Now I'm just kind of stuck with things in life that I don't really like, but I don't see any reason to hope for anything better. If there is hope, 
and a future for Elimelech's family. If there's an heir for Elimelech, if there's hope for Ruth, despite all the bad choices that her community made for her, then there is hope for you. Hope for you personally in your own life. More than that, hope for you together as a community, as the people of God. Hope for renewal mainline. Why? Because God takes the awful stories that you and I choose to write for ourselves. He takes the awful stories that other people choose to write for us. And he rewrites them. He rewrites them to replace cursing with blessing. Are there consequences to badly written stories? Consequences that are not fully undone on this earth? Of course there are. But when God enters into the story, he sets it in a different direction. His involvement does not make those consequences disappear, but it does source them inside of a larger framework, one that leads to blessing away from curse. There's so much hope in the gospel because there's so much hope in this God. There's hope for you individually. There's hope for you as a community. So my plea with you this morning, please don't leave here this morning feeling hopeless. You have a guardian redeemer who is thrilled to restore. Let me pray for us, and then we'll have some time for each of us to personally pursue him. Lord Jesus, we have made, I'll speak personally, I have made so many bad decisions in life. So many times when I have chosen foolishness instead of you. Lord, I suspect that my new friends have that same confession. Lord, you should have left us cursed, but you didn't. You've been gracious. You've been kind. You've pursued us. You've given us hope and a future through Jesus. And so my prayer now, Lord, is that you would give us confidence that you are willing, interested, passionate to help us. Lord, that you would give us that sense, that, that inward sense of being restored, of being set on a path where we line our lives up with you and what you're doing in this world. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise as we worship him together. Sing to him, you thought of us. You thought of us before the world began to breathe. names before we came to be. You saw the very day we'd fall away from you. 